are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. As we look around the world, we see that not every country um, simply has the police collaborating with um, wokes beating women in the street. Uh that's not a universal feature. Um, many people think that uh, Chris Elston um, is an American because his anti-woke campaign has been so much more successful in the United States. They have no idea he lives in White Rock. And one of the many uh, false um, claims that are made about him is that he is, in fact, a GOP voting Republican from somewhere in the American South. <laughs> um, so we have to think about why it is that we have this specific vulnerability in this country. And I wouldn't say it's a unique vulnerability. Uh, I think that uh, Kelly J. Keene's world tour really tells us where the places are that um, uh, in which uh, wokeness uh, is most ascendant. And we see this right at the edge of the resource periphery of the British Empire. <clears throat> New Zealand, Tasmania, uh, Canada. Uh, we don't see the same level of woke hegemony uh in Dixie, which is interesting given that uh, wokeness is a fairly misogynistic ideology, and we don't exactly think of Oklahoma as a beacon of women's rights. Uh, we don't uh, necessarily uh, think of England as the most progressive place in the world. And yet, it's in the American South and in um, the core of the British Empire where we see some of the most significant pushback against uh, woke ideology uh, to the extent that it is an ideology. And so I thought today I would talk a little bit about why Canada has the specific vulnerability that it does to um, this particular way of understanding the world. So um, to do that, we need to talk a little bit about the, the nature of Canada. So uh, if you didn't read my latest uh, essay on the subject, um, 1867 is a pretty arbitrary year to pick for the start of Canada. Uh, there are very good reasons to pick another year. Uh, 1837, for instance, when Papineau and William Lyon Mackenzie rose up against the family compact uh, and uh, marched on the legislatures and drove out the corrupt officials. Um, 
we, we could choose that year. We could choose 1840, the year the Lord Durham uh, constituted Canada and created a colony called Canada and merged um, Upper and Lower Canada into a single legislature. The decision to call Canada, the decision to say that Canada was formed in 1867 was, as in all founding narratives for a country, an ideological decision. Uh, it's that 1867 had a series of moments that reflected the values of Lester Pearson uh, when he created the Canada as we know it. Uh, Pearson's project in the 1960s was a huge one. The Liberal Party of Canada had been the natural governing party for a long time. Uh, and with the exception of a constitutional crisis and a single term government during the Great Depression, uh, Canada had been ruled by the Liberals from 1921 until 1962. And uh, there was a, a, sorry, a, a 1921 to 1957. Uh, and there was a sense of shock when they lost power and lost three elections in a row. And they had to think about when they regained power in 62 or 63, they um, had to think about why it is that they had lost power and how they could make sure that wouldn't happen again. And so they created what we think of as Canadian nationalism. Uh, the flag adopted under Pearson, the constitution patriated under Trudeau, uh, O Canada adopted as our national anthem, official multiculturalism, official bilingualism. Uh, these things all happened, um, were all started under Pearson and either concluded under Pearson or under Trudeau, his successor. So the idea of Canada that we have today is um, essentially a piece of Cold War propaganda. We associate it with certain values, one of which is elite brokerage. The idea that um, the important people will get together and they will hammer out a deal for us. That's the essential value of Pearsonian nationalism. And that's why we view our constitution, our pension schemes, and Medicare as essential parts of the Canadian Federation, because they were hammered out at premier's conferences in the 19, uh, well, in the 20th century. Uh, those processes of elite level negotiation are very much part of what we have been told Canada is about. Now, there are good and bad reasons for believing these things. Stephen Harper 
when he was in power, he understood that liberal hegemony had been achieved in Canada by stapling these values to our theory of who we were as a nation. And he planned to undo that. Uh, his citizenship guide uh, that was published in 2009 when he was prime minister uh, is an interesting document because it, um, it lays out who, it lays out an alternative nationalism. And when he finally achieved a majority government, he uh, created an entity that was supposed to propound that alternative nationalism. Uh, we were supposed to have celebrated Canada's 200th birthday in 2015. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that Stephen Harper was bad at math. It's simply that Harper counted the founding of our nation from a different date. It was his belief that Canada was forged in the War of 1812, that the alliance between Francophones, Anglophones, and the Iroquois Confederacy was forged on the battlefield. Uh, in the War of 1812, when we repelled an American invasion and burned down the White House. Uh, and encoded in Harper's nationalism was a different set of values, whereas elite brokerage, compromise, forging decisions in a negotiation that those were liberal values, Harper's conservative values said, no, Canada was forged on the battlefield. It was created on the battlefield when English, French, and indigenous people cooperated together to repel an invasion from the United States that Canada's values are not compromise and elite brokerage. They are loyalty to the crown, valor in battle, those sorts of things. Uh, now, of course, Harper was no more correct than Lester Pearson. Both of the stories that were told about who we are as a people are true. They are made up of real historical events. And which historical events we choose as significant, which historical events we decide created Canada um, is a political choice, not a historical choice. As a historian, I can give you 11 different dates that Canada came into being. Uh, there are lots of compelling dates. I myself am an 1837 nationalist. I choose to believe that Canada was made when William Lyon Mackenzie and Papineau marched on the legislature with common people who demanded representative democracy and responsible government. 
which their uprising did in fact bring about. Uh, we could tell a story about John Cabot discovering Canada in 1497. We could tell a story about um, the founding of Louisbourg, uh, the first uh, permanent Canadian city in 1605. Uh, lots of stories about this country. So today I'm going to tell you a particular story, uh, the story of the social gospel. You'll recall that a number of years ago, uh, when Jack Layton was uh, leader of the NDP, uh, CBC ran a contest um, to vote for who the greatest Canadian was. Now, I, I felt the contest was cheap because I think Peter Zosky ran a better contest in the 80s when Zosky was the host of Morningside. And really, you, you honestly believe Canada existed when Zosky was talking, right? That, that this imagined community that we were part of seemed so real when he would like phone up people in Saskatchewan and, and, and they would talk about farming or some other issue utterly irrelevant to most of us that, uh, but Peter Zosky had this way of speaking that made Pearsonian nationalism feel real for at least four hours a day on AM radio. Um, so when we think about, um, uh, the, the reality of Canada, um, you know, once upon a time, CBC was that reality. Today, CBC has uh, adopted the Fox News business model. Um, its job is to frighten seniors. That's, uh, that's its function. You keep old people turning in by telling them that their country is under siege, that uh, their democracy is hanging by a thread, and their neighbors are all terrible malefactors working to kill them. And uh, that's unfortunate. Um, it's really a, a, a genuine tragedy. Uh, but when CBC was still, you know, slinging the hash, it was slinging in the 20th century. Uh, in the last phases of CBC, when the Harper government was slashing it to pieces, it ran this greatest Canadian contest. And as I said, I think this was a this was a pale imitation of Zosky's contest in the 80s. Zosky called upon his listeners to complete the sentence as Canadian as. And the response was as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. Uh, I think that uh, that's probably the best description of the country. Uh, but we use blunter instruments in this century and uh, a vote was held, and much as the NDP uh, fails to get their voters out uh, at general election time, 
they managed to get a lot of people to vote in this CBC poll. Uh, and the result was that we named Tommy Douglas the greatest Canadian of all time. Douglas is an interesting figure. He's the creator of the NDP and the father of Medicare, which is interesting given that he was neither the first NDP leader, nor did he implement Medicare during his 17 years as premier of Saskatchewan. He left that job to Woodrow Lloyd, who implemented Medicare, endured a doctor's strike, and was voted out of office. Uh, Douglas had moved up to the federal level, and he had um, replaced the first leader of the NDP, Hazen Argue, which, what a fabulous name that is. Uh, Hazen Argue um, served as leader of the NDP for eight months. Uh, Douglas defeated him. He crossed the floor. He became a liberal. Mm -hmm. And um, he uh, became the senator most interested in telekinesis. Uh, so, um, but we have this idea of Medicare as this core function and Douglas as the most significant Canadian. And I think there are good reasons to believe that. I'm going to make a case for the rest of today's class for why Douglas deserved that vote. So the British Empire, uh, right, so there have been three British empires. Uh, the first British Empire was based on the 13 colonies and the Caribbean. Uh, it was based on plantation slavery and moving well from the Western Hemisphere to the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, it was a very successful empire. Uh, but in order to win the Seven Years' War, which was nine years long, um, the British Empire had to make some reforms and they created an entity called the Continental Army, which um, rose up against the British Empire 13 years later and threw it out of most of the Western Hemisphere. <clears throat> Britain's colonies down the East Coast of North America uh, rebelled against it using the tools the British Empire had itself created. And the reason Nova Scotia didn't join those things is that uh, the British military was the single largest employer in Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia was just a giant naval base. Um, and so uh, it didn't join the rebellion because the British were signing everybody's paychecks. Following that, we went into the second phase of the British Empire, the British Empire that was based on moving wealth from India to England. Uh, but the British Empire, one of the reasons it was able to bounce back was that it was very good at self-criticism. Um, when the British Empire was firing in all cylinders, every time it failed, it would investigate its own failure in 
a surprisingly courageous and honest way. So after the fall of the first British Empire, during the building of the second British Empire, the British asked themselves this, why did America feel entitled to rise up against us? And the answer was because Americans thought they were Englishmen. Uh, England has a long common law tradition of democratic uprisings that precede the existence of representative democracy. The Magna Carta is one of the signposts of that phenomenon. Another signpost of that phenomenon was Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, uh, when a grand coalition of indentured servants, African slaves, and uh, free young men rose up against the government of Virginia and um, drove out the British crown. They did this because, as in 1776, not because they thought Americans were not English and were a separate country, but because they believed Americans were English and that the English people had the right to rise up against the evil counselors of the king and slay the king's evil counselors a long-term tradition that preceded literacy. Well, that, 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 that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a compelling, it's a charismatic and compelling idea. Um, this, um, this idea that uh, English people have the right to rise up. And that's why um, after the first British empire, the English never sent their people to run any of their colonies because they felt that their people were too entitled, that there could be another American revolution if they sent Englishmen to run England's colonies. So I don't know what you've noticed, but uh, when you're watching TV and people speak with an Indian accent, I'm very, very happy to be here. Um, don't you think we should think it's weird that everybody from India would have the same accent, given that Southern India speaks Dravidian languages like Malayalam that are not part of the Indo-European language structure. And yet Northern India speaks Indo-European languages descended from Sanskrit. Uh, why would people who speak Dravidian languages have the same accent as people who speak Indo-European languages? Well, the answer is simple. The Welsh were sent to run India. Uh, what you think of as an Indian accent is a Welsh accent. It's how English sounds. 
if they you've been taught English by a Welshman. Uh, that's why when we have a significant ceremony in Canada, everybody who doesn't have a weird ribbon button blanket is wearing a kilt because they sent the Scots to run Canada. They didn't trust Englishmen to run this country. They chose a, another colonized people to run this place because they would know their place. They wouldn't rise up. They wouldn't believe they had the rights of Englishmen because they were not Englishmen. Uh, that's why so many people of South Asian ancestry were expelled from East Africa during decolonization in the 60s because they sent the Welsh to run India and they sent the Indians to run Africa. So we have to understand then that Canada is not, is an English colony only in a certain sense. Um, it's not based on the cultural norms and mores of England. It's based on the cultural norms and mores of Scotland. And uh, that's why there were, ex the Scots were by, had by far the most violent education system in the world. It's why our residential schools were so savage. Uh, the Scottish people figured out how if you hit children enough, they will learn math. Uh, and there are these other strange values. One of the values of Scotland is that it went through the Reformation differently than England. In England, the Reformation, as we know, was about Henry VIII um, getting a younger wife, a younger, hotter wife. That was the purpose of the English Reformation. The English only kind of take the Reformation seriously. The Scots take the Reformation very seriously. Scotland was the first and one of the only countries on earth that imposed Calvinism on its population from above. Because one of the tenets of Calvinism is that the state can't impose it from above. Uh, Anglicanism has no problem with coercive conversion. It doesn't have a coherent doctrine. Presbyterianism, on the other hand, has a highly coherent, self-consistent doctrine. It's John Calvin who gives us the West's model of a secular society. We have to remember that one of the features of Christianity until John Calvin's emergence was that um, Christianity was ideologically opposed to religious diversity. It if if uh, the countries that had religious pluralism in the Middle Ages were all Muslim countries. Ah. Uh, Muslim countries, Hindu countries, they understood that different people could have different religions and that was fine. Uh, Christians were totally against that idea. Uh, the 800-year Reconquista of Spain 
where the Christians retook Spain in an agonizing, incredibly bloody process that started in 714 and ended in 1492, um, involved depriving Muslims and Jews from their of their right to be Muslims and Jews. Uh, people who wanted to keep being those things either did it in private or they fled to Portugal or North Africa. Sephardic Jews are uh, the descendants of that uh, experience. So religious pluralism, like the free market, is a very special and strange thing that John Calvin stapled to Christianity over a thousand years after the system had been created. And Calvin's idea, right, is based on a particular verse in the Bible that God is there whenever a group of his followers are together. That God is imminent in the world when Christians gather. And Calvin saw this as the basis for a consensual voluntarist theory of Christianity. Now, that's not what really happened when he ran Geneva. They executed people who didn't agree with him. But uh, the, the, the principle was nevertheless important. And it produced the only model we have in the West of a secular society. Catholic ideas of secularism come much later, and they're highly unstable. They're based on the thinking of Cornelius Jansen, uh, a guy who was a contemporary of Calvin's, who largely taught the same doctrines as Calvin, but stayed inside the Catholic Church. The governing ideology of this country is Jansenist, or has been since 1896 with the election of Sir Wilfrid Laurier as prime minister. Uh, the only coherent thinking that has been done about Canada has been done by our Francophone prime ministers. Um, English Canada is very, very bad at thinking about itself. It's one of the key vulnerabilities I'm going to be talking about today. Pierre Elliott Trudeau was a Jansenist. Uh, he followed the thinking and doctrines of Cornelius Jansen. That's why he was skeptical of democracy. Why he, why his main global political alignment was with Maoists in China. Um, old man Trudeau believed in the Jansenist theory of society, which is that Whenever people group up, it's probably dangerous. And we need a very powerful government to smash collectives that start bossing people around. The Jansenists led the revolt uh, called the Quiet Revolution that removed Maurice Duplessis. Uh, 
Then their thinking was that Duplessis, who created this theocratic state in Quebec in the 1940s, the thinking was that um, Duplessis was the prime example of how if people get together and make decisions together, they're probably screwing over some minority and they're probably bossing people around. Uh, and it's not a stupid theory by any means. Um, the Jansenists um, rose up against this government. It's, uh, and if you want to understand Jansenism better, uh, watch Law and Order. The showrunner, Rene Balser, was the youngest of the Quiet Revolutionaries. Uh, and uh, they have an interesting structuralist theory of how society works. But the thing is, and one of their beliefs, right, is that God has commanded them to secularize society. Uh, that was the doctrine of the Mexican Revolution. It was the doctrine of the Quiet Revolution. And it's why Canada is the only country in the world whose constitution begins with the recognition of the supremacy of God. You, you, you don't really think that when you think of uh, our prime minister's dad, right? He is this weird, sexually ambivalent uh, 17th century rake out of time who's sleeping with everyone and is very clever. And you never know whether he's going to come down on the authoritarian side or the side of liberty. Uh he is almost incomprehensible to English Canadians. But to Mexicans, um, this is a perfectly comprehensible person. Nearly every significant political leader in Mexico is a Jansenist. Uh, they believe that they have been commanded by God to smash the power of the church. Uh, it's an interesting way of thinking about the world but we have to remember that the actual text that creates roman catholicism as we know it is not a book of the bible it's the city of god by saint augustine and one of the key doctrines in the city of god is that the world Augustine had been a Manichaean, as I mentioned last class. He had originally believed that the world was a battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. But his view changed when he became a Christian, and he propounded this new theory of society in the city of God, which is that the world is a battle between the city of God and the city of man. But even inside the church, the city of man rules and the city of God is besieged. Now, that's the overarching structure of Canadian nationalism, but that's not actually how most of Canada works. Canada, English Canada, the Canada we live in, is in many ways, I'm arguing today, a Calvinist theocracy, a Presbyterian theocracy. 
The doctrines propounded by John Calvin in Institutes of the Christian Religion have an extraordinary power in Canada. We were out, English Canada was, after all, a society created by Scottish Presbyterians based on their values, and not just their values, but their culture. What we like to drink, how we dress up, all of those things about us as Anglo-Canadians are primarily Scottish, not English. And one of the features of that is that unlike all of the other Calvinists in the world, we don't really believe in democracy. Most of the world's Calvinists believe in the core tenet of Calvinism, which is that whenever people consensually gather in a community, that is God's will. That's an expression of God's will. But as we come from the only established, the only non-consensual Calvinist church on earth, other than the Dutch, and you might want to think about our interesting commonalities with South Africa on that basis. It's the other established Calvinist colony. Uh, we have a very peculiar understanding of how things are supposed to work. An example of this is ecumenism. So all over the world in the 19th century, um, there was an ecumenical movement, an effort to unite the various Protestant churches that had split from each other over the previous centuries. Ecumenism only succeeded in one country on the face of the earth. It is only in Canada where the Congregationalists and the Methodists merged back into a single church called the United Church of Canada. 70% uh, of the Presbyterian congregations also joined the United Church of Canada. Canada is special in that we have only one Methodist chapel in the entire country. Uh, because it was created by the University of Toronto Agreement in 1848. Uh, there is, by the way, legally no University of Toronto. The University of Toronto is an endlessly elaborating set of agreements and ad hoc decisions. You notice this in the winter because every unit of the University of Toronto has a different snow removal contract. And... Um, they dump snow on each other. Uh, basically, they just shovel the snow onto the next unit of the University of Toronto, which shovels it onto another unit of the University of Toronto until it eventually makes it to um, museum subway station where they dump all the snow on top of the subway station. Uh, that, that's what the law school does. Uh, it dumps snow on the subway station. Uh, when I taught at U of T, the sign outside of the building in which I taught said, Emmanuel College in Victoria College in the University of Victoria College in the University of Toronto. Uh, 
anyway, there's that that the University of Toronto, because of these endlessly elaborating agreements, has the only Methodist chapel in Canada, um, which uh, my my ex urinated on, unfortunately, uh, causing her to be uh, driven out of the university. Um, that's a whole separate story. But um, suffice to say that we see in the spirit of all of these agreements, the essential Calvinism of Canadians. Calvin loved the contract. He loved the agreement. Every time people agreed to anything, he saw that as an elaboration of the will of God. Every time people made a decision by consent rather than coercion, this was a godly thing. And because U of T is over 200 separate individual legal agreements, it is probably the best expression of Canadian Calvinism because it's totally undemocratic and authoritarian, but it's based on all this agreement. So late 19th century Canada was a very interesting place. It was creating a united church. It was Anglo-Canadians had high levels of consent, high levels of agreement about their society, as you would expect, given that Upper Canada, i.e. Toronto, was founded by a group of people who in 1784 found democracy so intolerable that they moved to Toronto. These people were living in perfectly nice places before that. Um, but they, they sort of, they, they moved to this snow-covered mud pit on the North Shore of Lake Ontario because they were so upset that their town had rebelled against the crown and created democracy. So there is a profound ambivalence about democracy that was baked into Canada from the very beginning. And it's why Canada found progressivism to be such a seductive ideology because it effaced that contradiction. Now, I use the term progressive, let me be clear, as a pejorative. I never liked the term when I was a progressive. And now that I'm not one, I really don't like it. Um, but progressivism is a great idea in a certain kind of society because what it functions as is a meta consensus, as a meta ideology. Progressivism gathers under its flag every ideology that believes in progress. And progress is a crazy idea, I think. Um, it's this idea that somehow morality is baked into history. That simply by virtue of time passing, we will become more just, more intelligent, more decent, more democratic, all the values you want to believe in. Time is just going to infuse society with that. 
Now, the original rise of progressivism took place in the 1890s. And in the original version of progressivism, it was a broad left-right consensus, which it remains, although people don't understand it that way anymore. If you look at an encyclopedia written in the 1890s, uh, one of the features of it was it will show the different races of the world. And the races will be in an order, looking kind of like a number line, where you have the faces of different phenotypes of human beings. And an 1890s encyclopedia will start with caveman. And it will say, caveman, 10,000 B.C., and there'll be a, a drawing of a caveman. And then Africans, 5,000 BC, a drawing of African. And then Indians, and then the other Indians, and then the Chinamen, and then the Turks. And eventually you get to the top of the line, and it's either a German or an English person. Um. In the original golden age of progressivism, the idea was that there is no such thing as cultural difference. It's just you at a different time. Uh, and the original idea of progress was that you could take these other races and you could kind of put them in a time compressor so that they will eventually turn into Prussians or Englishmen. Uh, but faster because of technology. So progressivism is a shockingly unempathetic way of understanding the world. And that's because it arises from a movement called the, um, well, it arises from a few places. Uh, Herbert Spencer's interpretation of origin of species called social Darwinism is one of the sources. The idea that even though Darwin wrote a whole second book to say Herbert Spencer is wrong called The Descent of Man, uh, nevertheless, nobody ever actually read Darwin. Darwin is like Marx today. Everybody had an opinion about what Darwin said and reading Darwin would only get in the way of that opinion. Uh, so Herbert Spencer wrote Social Darwinism, which was read far more than Origin of Species or Descent of Man. And um, it was about how race was our big meta uh, characteristic and how if you could just make a race progress, they will become more technologically competent, more literate and more white. And that was the basis of uh, Canadian immigration policy uh, until 1967. So that was one of the sources of this idea of progress, of progressivism. But the great thing about progressivism is that um, it argues not in favor of democracy, but in favor of technocracy of government by the experts, that we just need to scientifically discover the correct public policy 
and will implement it. Right, this very problematic idea called social justice comes out of this period. Um, social justice is one of the least empathetic terms we have in the English language. It, because it's, it's an insult. It suggests that people who don't believe in progressivism don't believe in justice, rather than the much more reasonable idea that they just have a different idea of what is just. That justice, there is no meta theory of justice. There's no scientifically discoverable justice. We have values, we believe in things, and what we believe in conditions our theory of justice. But a big factor in the formation of Canada as a nation, which takes place after 1867, is the social gospel uh, and our understanding of social justice. The social gospel does not start in Canada. It starts in the United States, in the aftermath of the California gold rush, when we suddenly discover what men will get up to if you leave them alone. And uh, one of the proto-social programs of Anglo-America is something called the Home Rescue Mission uh, in the, the cities of the West, Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle. One of the first institutions that's created are ecumenical home rescue missions. Um, these are transition houses, essentially. Uh, women leaving violent relationships who need, need housing are taken in by the home rescue missions. Uh, these are female-led, female-run establishments that have the blessing of some Protestant church or other or the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the first major membership-based feminist organization in the world. And um, these home rescue missions, um, uh, their first priority is uh, Chinese sex workers, um, Chinese prostitutes who have been trafficked to the new world and uh, want to, uh, you know, stop being raped all the time. And uh, they move into these houses that are run by church ladies from Protestant churches. The social gospel takes, start, starts doing, by doing social service, but it then takes on a number of really good causes, like creating the National Anti-Lynching Organization in America bringing in federal legislation to prevent black people in Dixie from being lynched. Um, while these organizations, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Home Rescue Missions start in America, they spread to Canada and they become a defining feature of this country. One of, so, Canadian masculinity is a very strange thing. Like, well, I mean, it produced Jordan Peterson. Um, 
right? And and and, and Peterson like is is one of the reasons that I, I get all this weird mail about how I should be friends with Peterson because I'm just like him. That's not entirely wrong, right? You a certain generation of men uh, in Canada epitomize what's called the crisis of masculinity of the 20th century. We grew up during the 1970s divorce wave. So we don't know how to do anything with our hands. And um, Canadians are next to Hawaiians, the most notoriously passive aggressive men on earth. So we have no capacity to express our anger. Um, an ex of mine's father actually really epitomizes Canadian masculinity. Um, in, I guess, I guess it was 10 years ago now, he saw an ad. He was the last subscriber to the print edition of the Greater Vancouver Buy and Sell. And uh, he saw an ad in 2012 that said free wood in Brackendale. So he drove his half-ton pickup up to Brackendale and discovered there was a lot of free wood. Uh, so he brought all the free wood back to his home in six trips, three tons of wood. Um, he spread it out in the backyard, killed all the grass, and he sorted the wood. And then he began building something, which was supposed to be his woodworking shop. But after a while, it seemed to be getting out of control. Um, the woodworking shop was three stories high. <laughs> it had a it had cable, it had electricity, it had a washroom. You could only get between the rooms by ladder because um, his wife had spondylitis and she couldn't climb a ladder. Uh, and um, then he built the chicken run. And so he didn't put any chickens in the chicken run. It was an unfilled moat. And he essentially had built a siege tower behind his own house to besiege his own home. And uh, whenever he would get really angry, he would go into a woodworking shop and injure himself with a saw because that's Canadian masculinity. He couldn't actually yell at his wife. He just built a siege tower behind her house from which he could glare at her and periodically engage in acts of self-harm to express his frustration. Uh, I think this tells us a lot about the nature of Canada. Uh, so there's a sense in which... Um, this is a female-led nation in ways that other patriarchies are not. I would never suggest that Canada isn't a patriarchy, but we have to understand what a patriarchy is, right? It's a, it's a broad agreement among people who are not young, violent men to keep young, violent men under control. And the most efficient way to do that is to give power to old, rich men. Uh, they're the people who are the most efficient at either disempowering or killing violent young men. Uh, we created conscription, right? It's uh, 
uh, logging, whaling, all these activities, right? They, they, they distract and kill young violent men. In Canada, um, we see this strange, this strange kind of feminized patriarchy from the nation's foundation. Most countries were not formed in the 1870s, but we were. And that's when the, a female-headed teaching profession emerged. It's when social work became a profession through the home rescue mission system. It's um, when nursing became a profession. Uh, and these professions did not arise evenly all over the world. They arose primarily in highly Protestant societies that had a particular theory of virtue ethics. Canada then is a somewhat special place where Australia is pretty woke, but it's not as woke as Canada. Australia was largely a homosocial society, right? It was men who were being exiled because they were violent. And that's why Australia is a nation of sports clubs and universal suffrage and things like that. Australia does not prize self-control in the way that Canada or New Zealand does. We have our, our set of reasons in Canada, in New Zealand, because the, um, there was a much, the Maori were much more involved in the creation of New Zealand than Canada's Aboriginal people were in the creation of Canada. Um, Polynesians are the only people that produce more passive aggressive men than uh, Protestants do. Uh, the, the belief in self-control as the measure of a person defines Polynesian society. And so we can see New Zealand got to where we are, but by a very different route. Uh, by a route that is more autochthonous, that is more connected to its indigenous identity. Whereas in Canada, um, Canada was simply formed socially at the zenith of the social gospel. Now, the social gospel existed really throughout the, the, the greater Gilded Age. Uh, Mark Twain comes up with the term the Gilded Age to refer to the times in which he's living in the late 19th century. Most people see the Gilded Age, this period of rapid capitalist expansion, rapid internationalization, our first go at neoliberalism, essentially. So that by, the, by 1930, almost everyone is deeply in debt and paying for everything on installment plans. Uh, that's the social gospel is the corollary of the Gilded Age. It's the social response to trying to mitigate the problems caused by this out of control capitalism. The social gospel um, is what we call a post-millennial theory. Um, 
one of the problems in Christianity uh, that Christians have fought about for the past 2,000 years is does Jesus come at the start of the millennium or at the end of the millennium? So churches we would see as apocalyptic or eschatological tend to be premillennialist. They believe that Jesus, that things are getting so bad, Jesus will be back anytime now. <laughs> and uh, he will um, sort things out. And then the millennium will happen. Postmillennialists, who are rare these days, but were the majority a hundred years ago, believe that Jesus shows up at the start of the millennium, except you don't recognize him. Your social reform work is the millennium. Your home rescue mission is the embryo that will grow into the millennium. Uh, that Jesus is here, but he's not. Postmillennialism is often the off-ramp for believing in God. Uh, the idea that God is here and you're doing his work, and in fact, you are his work, but there's no sign of him. It produces a secular consciousness. So the home rescue missions were all church-sponsored. Um, and Canada got really into public health, home rescue, all that good stuff. And we were one of the first countries to really start accrediting people with professional credentials for that. The story of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the NDP's precursor, is in many ways the story of Canada. Tommy Douglas, J.S. Woodsworth, these were churchmen, right? In any, if we narrated our story in a remotely responsible way, we would describe the CCF as an explicitly theocratic party. It was led by Methodist church ministers who taught that God had a plan for reforming society called the social gospel. Now, the social gospel was an idea in America, but it never attained significant power. In Canada, on the other hand, William Lyon Mackenzie King preached the social gospel. He believed in a particular post-millennial theory of Protestantism, and he built much of the Canadian state as our longest-serving prime minister on that idea. Um, and as we know, King engaged in very interesting forms of polling because... You know, back in the day when um, the media was quiet about your weird fetish, uh, sorry, Justin Trudeau, um, 
William Lyon Mackenzie King was not into race play like Justin Trudeau. He was a cross-dresser, right? He was not a gynophile because that's a pretty standard personality architecture for highly domineering men, right? Conscripting someone else into pretending that you're a thing you're not is uh, it's it's a control thing. And Mackenzie King would get dressed up and he would go down to the street worker prostitute stroll and he would talk to in drag um <laughs> prostitutes about how things were going um i gotta say I, I kind of admire that as a polling strategy like you're talking to most marginalized people in the country and you're presenting yourself in a pretty vulnerable way shall we say and um, you're getting their opinions about stuff. Um, Mackenzie King wrote a very long, totally incoherent book about the social gospel. Um, but the fact is, it wasn't just the CCF that were social gospelers. The Protestant leadership of the country were social gospelers. The Protestants who didn't believe in the social gospel voted Tory. And they were almost continuously out of power from the end of the First World War to the end of the Cold War. Uh, parties that embraced the social gospel, which included some provincial Tory parties in the West, created the Canadian social contract as we know it. So the social gospel is a progressive ideology. It believes that things are getting better every year, year by year, because that's been baked into the structure of the universe. Uh, it believes that the state is implicated in engaging in charitable acts. But most importantly, the social gospel is about a transformation of priesthood. And this is the key to Canada's vulnerability to wokeness. Because Tommy Douglas was a church minister one day, and the next day, he was a professional social worker. Got a PhD in social work. And what happened in Canada is quite different than what happened in early 20th century secularization in other English speaking countries. In most of the Anglosphere, secularization, the decline in church attendance by the educated, the state taking on responsibilities that the church had previously had, like feeding the poor, housing the homeless, providing basic medical care. Those were church responsibilities for over a thousand years. And they became state responsibilities overnight. In Mexico, there was the Cristero Civil War. Uh, in America, there were people like Father Coughlin who created street militias to stand up against this professionalization and secularization of the business of the church. Uh, there was no secularization in Quebec, let me be clear. The church continued to run all those things until the choir revolution in the 1960s. 
But in English Canada, what you see is a massive defection. People like Douglas, people like Woodsworth, they don't just give up their job as church ministers. They become accredited professionals in the caring professions. And because they bring all of this legitimacy that comes from their record as people of faith, as men of God, Canada worships the caring professions in a more devout and a more extreme way than other places. And because Canada, Canada's French leadership is Jansenist, it, it thinks about the state, the authoritarian state, the technocratic state as the ultimate guardian of liberty that elections, that democracy pollute our liberty. They abridge our liberty, according to the Jansenist theory. If you put Jansenism together with this kind of post-millennial Christianity, you create what looks on its surface like a secular society. Everybody stopped going to church. Um, everybody believes in progress, not God, except that the social work profession, public health nursing, all of these caring professions are actually just church ministers. Um, and our understanding of what social workers are in charge of our understanding of what they're entitled to judge is based on this secularized Protestantism. This sense that that's why next to Sweden, Canada taxes alcohol more heavily than any other country on earth. Um, we have a natural inclination to think that the liberal state speaks with the voice of God and that it is legitimate for it to judge our lifestyle, to judge our personal choices and to recommend better ones. Progressivism then fused with the social gospel and fused with this Jansenist social contract is essentially the background the underlying social contract of English Canada. Uh, this kind of secularized Scottish Presbyterianism in which restraint is important. You don't express anger. But most importantly, as in any true technocracy, you implicitly trust experts. You, through much of the 20th century, Canada was always doing white papers and royal commissions to figure out what it thought. Uh, the most important royal commission in Canadian history was the Royal Commission on Bilingualism, 
It was a seven-year investigation of bilingualism. We switched prime ministers in the middle of the investigation. And that's because one of the features you find in progressivism, in the technocratic social contract, is this uh, is the meta-ideology of progressivism. Progressive coalitions could be enormous in the 20th century because they could include Marxists and they could include libertarians because everyone in the coalition believed that you could use social science to investigate what was going on and come up with the correct answer. That's why libertarians and Marxists would hand a decision to experts because their faith in their respective ideologies was so strong that they believed social science would prove them right through an empirical investigation of the situation. So this is... Um, uh, so this created a high level of social agreement, which is one of the reasons nobody really questioned whether Canada had secularized. People simply moved from Protestant churches as church ministers there into eugenics, like Tommy Douglas, right? His doctoral thesis is about the importance of sterilizing mentally disabled people. He specifically recanted that in the 60s, uh, admitted he made a mistake, which is one of the reasons I continue to remember him as a good guy. But we have to remember that the belief that you can delegate moral decisions to experts is a very particularly Canadian one. Now, the term expert is an important one to interrogate here. Um, expertise is not simply knowledge. It is state-authorized knowledge. That's why during COVID, when Bonnie Henry would come out with seemingly intellectually inconsistent and irrational COVID directives in British Columbia, she would be criticized by, a doc by doctors who had published 20 times as many peer-reviewed articles as she had, who were viewed as, in every way, more knowledgeable than her. Epidemiologists, right? I mean, her main achievements were, um, you know, I mean, she was a disgraced public figure, right? She was hired by Christy Clark as a weak public health officer because she had been fired over her mismanagement of SARS in, um, at uh, Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Um, but when a doctor far more senior and far more knowledgeable than her would contradict her, the chorus would be, trust the science. Bonnie Henry is the expert. What made her the expert? 
the state appointed her as the highest ranking public health officer in the province. Expertise, uh, the term expert comes into being in the 16th century uh, because the English crown realizes that market towns can't raise enough money to dredge their harbors properly. And they appoint hydrologists who seize authority from the municipality under royal authority and dredge the harbor. Um, expertise is inextricably linked to state power. Um, that's the true meaning of expertise. And it is this fusion of religious authority, state authority, and knowledge that has produced Canada's technocratic class. We have a faith in experts, or we had it at least. We had a faith in experts and urban Canadians retain that faith. Um, that is atypical of the first world. It's not normal for people to trust state-appointed experts this much. But it's because we didn't really secularize. We simply changed the name of Tommy Douglas's job. We changed the name of J.S. Woodsworth's job. But they're not really experts, they're priests. They're Protestant ministers of the United Church of Canada. And this created a very specific vulnerability when we reached the woke moment. Other countries debate this term, life-saving gender-affirming care, our euphemism for sterilizing children because they feel uncomfortable during puberty. Like that's not the universal experience of puberty. Ah, uh, no adolescent has ever felt comfortable in their body. That's not what being an adolescent is about. It's just feeling disgusting all day. Ah, uh, right. I, I, I mean, being a teenage boy was awful because it's not just that you're disgusting to everybody else. You're disgusting to yourself, right? You're this horrible, malodorous creature. Um, with this sex drive that's totally incommensurate with your sexual opportunities. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal experience. But with, uh, but in Canada, we question the gender orthodoxy less than people do pretty much anywhere other than New Zealand. And one of the reasons for that is that what we thought was secularization was actually the sanctification of the caring professions. That the people running the caring professions were our church ministers and they remain so. That's why we have such low church attendance. We don't need to go to church because Social workers and public health nurses and doctors, those people perform the functions 
of a normal church minister in a functioning society in English Canada. And this has left us open because one of the primary ways that the wokes have seized power is by seizing syndical organizations. And Canada is one of the most strongly syndical countries in the world. I mentioned in an earlier lecture how Andrew Jackson in the 1820s in the United States smashed the syndical organizations. They destroyed the medical associations. They destroyed the priesthood. They destroyed lawyers. That's why people with no law degree um, make up a huge portion of the American judiciary because they broke the power of the lawyers to control who a lawyer or a judge was. They broke the power of the doctors to decide who a doctor was. And they realized that was a mistake. Too many people were dying, but uh, they, they put it back. But uh, for church ministers, for lawyers, for people like that, um, the United States went through a period of undermining the power of syndical organizations. And so I'm going to leave, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this, this talk by retelling the story of Medicare. Canadians have a bizarre and mythological understanding of Medicare. So Tommy Douglas basically dug Saskatchewan out of debt in order to bring in Medicare. He electrified the province. He did all, he built all this infrastructure and he paid off all the debt because he knew the doctor's union was going to freak out if they brought in something like the National Health Service in Canada. The NHS in Britain took away from doctors the power to decide how much they're paid and how they're paid. They put doctors on salary. They didn't let doctors keep charging by procedure. They didn't let doctors continue to pick how much those procedures were worth. They broke the power of the doctor's union and they created a body that would certify new doctors with or without the consent of the union. In Canada, that didn't happen. Woodrow Lloyd brought in something like the NHS in Saskatchewan and the doctors went on strike and they let lots of people die. And um, they eventually killed so many people that um, we had to make a compromise with them. And what we agreed was that we would not socialize medicine. We would only socialize medical insurance, that we would create provincial health insurance companies that paid doctors by the procedure based on a rate the doctors set. Canada backed out of the confrontation with the doctors. Uh, we noticed that um, we figured that as scary as the insurance industry was, it was less scary than doctors. And we, and so doctors remain um, private independent contractors in this country. We were terrified of their professional association and they threatened us and they let a lot of people die, and we backed down. 
That's why we can't control healthcare costs in this country. It's because um, doctors are not government employees, they're independent contractors. And that should tell you a lot about the power of technocracy in this country. Lawyers, doctors, judges, teachers, nurses, their professional associations make decisions that affect all of us. The BC College of Nurses, as we know, is drumming out Amy Hamm for having the wrong political opinions. But I was at this People's Party meeting uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was full of nurses who had been drummed out for their political opinions. We notice Amy Hamm because she's working on an issue that's adjacent to some of us. But the nurses, the BC College of Nurses has decertified all kinds of people over the past five years for political wrong think about COVID or the vaccines or the vax passes or any of those things. And similarly, these other professional associations in our country, they're the epitome of expertise where the state has handed the power to control important things about our lives to a guild, to a club. And the, one of the reasons that we're like this is because of the social gospel, because um, the most venerable of the great professions, the church ministers walked en masse into the caring professions and they carried with them not just the syndical power of those organizations to determine who can do their job and who can't, right? I mean, international medical graduates, is very interesting whose medical degree you accept in Canada. It's almost based entirely on the color of people's skin. Uh, you can have the best medical degree from Uttar Pradesh. You'll spend 25 years trying to get it recognized in Canada. But when all the white Afrikaners left South Africa because they were upset with black rule, they were just waved right in. Uh, the decisions of these associations are highly arbitrary, but because they're part, they, they have inherited the mantle of the Protestant clergy, we see them as infallible. So anyway, that's uh, today's talk. Questions and comments? Yeah, sure. When you were talking about, um, uh, uh, briefly about the pandemic and, and the experts, um, it seems to me like, I know it's true in Ontario where I am, and um, in other, I, I, I think of Calgary, I'm not sure about British Columbia, that um, health officials were going after church pastors. And even if they were holding um, uh, a service uh, in, in a field and everybody remained in their car, they landed up uh, being charged and then having to go to court and eventually that, that particular case was dropped. And moving right along in Ontario, um, I read this uh, maybe last week 
where the appeals court said uh, all these decisions about the vaccine and all all of that um, stands like we're we're not uh, we're not accepting any appeal on it because it was based on expertise from health officials. Then a, a, a lower court came out with a decision that basically told the um, appeals court to shove it by saying that um, it would not take judicial notice of a decision based on what public health officials had said because of how the issues have evolved. And I thought that was really kind of interesting that a court, for the most part, they give deference to um, government and their experts. And here within a court, uh, one says no. Where this goes, I don't know. But as we also know, the Emergencies Act is being is under judicial review. Um, today it wraps up. But I have a feeling that the court will say, yes, even though we don't know why the Emergencies Act, what piece of uh, information and documentation was used by the uh, cabinet to invoke and justify, they're, they're going to give deference to it and say, well, that's right. And I think that goes back to your point about, uh, is it Jenna's? Jenna's? Yes. And um, so and that would definitely say that they don't believe in democracy, that this, you know, because what it did to all of us right across Canada, it was not the Emergency Act just didn't affect people in Ottawa. It was right across the country. It was like it was a blunt instrument, like. I don't know. Well, blunt. So. Following the FLQ crisis, right, we had the McDonald Commission, which created the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, um, whose job it is to supervise the RCMP because Canada had to conclude the RCMP needed to be supervised. And that's because during the FLQ crisis, um, the RCMP uh, tapped more phones in British Columbia than in Quebec. Uh, whenever you proclaim a state of emergency, the cops go bananas and uh, they get everything through that they can under the emergencies legislation before the emergency ends because they got to make hay while the sun shines. And uh, so I, I think that, um, yeah, I, the, the, but back to your first point, about church ministers. The thing is that because we have secularized Protestantism, we are a Protestant country minus God, uh, right? We want the kingdom. We just don't want God in it. Um, What this means is that people who go to church are almost by definition not real Protestants. Um, the state is the church for real Protestants. Churches are places heretics go. Catholics and heretics, that's who goes to church in this country. Um, church congregations are much less white than the rest of the country. Uh, if we think about a churchgoer, we generally think about a Filipino woman in her 60s. 
uh, that's, that's our image of the church. And so Canada has a particular stigma of churchgoers. Um, churchgoers are almost by definition, even church, churchgoers who believe experts and listen to them, we're still going to assume they don't believe experts and don't listen to them. Uh, there are some vestigial Protestant congregations. I grew up in one, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church in Vancouver. But um, UBC had this lecture on Saturday nights called the Vancouver Institute, and they'd bring in great orators who would give these great talks. I, I remember the, the Lister Sinclair uh, Vancouver Institute lecture uh, that I went to as a kid. And all you did at the Unitarian Church was complain about Christianity and talk about the Vancouver Institute lecture that happened the night before. Um, God wasn't involved. In fact, they were. we were so on the cutting edge of the cultural appropriation discourse, they made our Sunday school try and carve jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips uh, because um, the pumpkin was a new world uh, food. Uh, so religiosity, right? Secularity in Canada is your expression of religiosity. And if you actually go to church, it means you're a conservative, an immigrant or a heretic. And, uh, so in the Canadian technocracy, absolutely. They're going to see if people if people are going to have problematic theories about authority, if people are going to act in problematic ways, if they're going to not be Canadian enough, the best place to look for those people is a church. And uh, I think that's very much what we saw during COVID, that you brought in muscular anti-COVID measures and use the churches as examples so that you could see that people of faith would go to jail if they did the wrong thing. That was an effective rhetorical strategy of, there are all kinds of people you could have sent to jail. Um, also, obviously, young people partying, we, we liked uh, sending some of them to jail, which is, again, part of that larger Protestant ethos. These young people are having too good a time. Uh, they're having too good a time and they're probably having sex that we're not having. Um, so uh, we're going to also make them public examples. Uh, whereas if you think of like good Protestant values, well, people who have to work long hours in crowds, we got zero problem with that. In fact, we're going to use legislation to force them to go to work, even if they're scared shitless of COVID. Uh, we're gonna have a 1200 person mess hall uh, on the coastal gas lake pipeline, uh, at site C, uh, all of these places, because we know that like work is a good Protestant value. Whereas like partying or worshiping in public, these are not good Methodist values. 
And we are going to make an example of those people in our crowd size rules. So, yeah, I, I think that COVID is a great way of showing the lack of secularization uh, in Canada, that it, um, who the state chose to punish and who the state chose to reward for standing together in groups in an enclosed space um, is really a recapitulation of the values of um, uh, progressive Protestantism 100 years ago. Other questions and comments? Well, you've almost inspired me to go back to writing uh, the book that I was working on called The Helping Hand Strikes Again. <laughs> That's a great title. How Help Keeps People Oppressed, Depressed, Addicted, and Powerless. Um, anyway, that was from working in the downtown east side and seeing exactly, it's like looking up the skirts of society. You see how everything works. Um, anyway, um, I have issue with some of your conclusions, but I'm not up to debating with you without going to school on them first. <laughs> so we'll have to save that for a later date, <laughs> particularly your, uh, your uh, analysis of uh, the patriarchy. Um, and I also found it interesting, this is again, flipping to another subject, because that's the way my mind works. Um, the um, uh, it's interesting that the that um, the YWCA set up a transition house in Vancouver, which uh, you know confirms your position about this stuff being coming from churches. But the only organization that shelters women from domestic violence um, in Vancouver, in Vancouver, and perhaps Canada is rape relief and it was not based it was not started by churches it was started by feminists and feminists who understood that you couldn't be uh, dependent on state funding if you wanted to survive and so they flourished for almost 50 years uh, and they are the only women's organization in Vancouver that has not uh, rolled over to the um, the, the ideology I think that's a really important point because their, their first wave feminism is strongly implicated in the caring professions in the original transition houses, right? The Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was like, we would all be donors if it were 150 years ago. The WCTU was a visionary organization that built a huge amount of our social services. Um, it was the first organization to fight domestic violence. Um, it was an extraordinary bunch. First wave feminism is very much what produced, uh, but ultimately, right, it was co-opted by the state. It did become, right, the WCTU was a social gospel organization. It produced these organizations, it produced these services. <clears throat> that were eventually um, taken over by men and taken over by the state. Um, the second wave is, you're absolutely correct, an effort to push back against that, an effort to, to 
creates uh, to create these programs that are governed by women that are outside the state. And I, I would never suggest that 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 second wave feminism was co-opted in the same way. Second wave feminism, um, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw's work, right, is quite interesting because, I mean, we're all suffering because of Kimberly Crenshaw and this stupid intersectionality theory. Because what she did was she hung out with some people who had some beefs with some women's centers in Los Angeles. Um, there's no, she didn't do any authorized evidence gathering. She never got a permit to interview anyone. There's nothing quantitative in her analysis. It's just a series of rumors she heard that constitute the foundation of intersectionality. But if we recognize that this was an intelligent person and she heard something significant, what can we take away from that? Crenshaw's work is largely about Blairite austerity, although she doesn't understand it to be so. Because what takes place in the late 80s and throughout the 90s is the state is adopting neoliberalism and it's contracting its work out. So, and this is one of the reasons we're so screwed today is that we had a robust um, system of democratically run charities and nonprofit societies that advocated for marginalized people and provided a certain quantity of services to them. And they held annual general meetings and volunteers made the decisions and, uh, the 90s come along and all of these third wave governments, you know, Harcourt, Romano, Ray, Cretchen, Blair, Clinton, what they do is they, um, they go, well, we have to cut the budget of the state massively. And so we're going to start delivering more of our services through the nonprofit sector, because that way we can get volunteers to work for the state. And we can depress wages because people who work at nonprofits will feel guilty if they go on strike. They'll feel like they're hurting people if they go on strike. They, they're not going to think they're going on strike against the government. So we can take the average wage of someone looking after the mentally disabled. We can cut it by 70%. Uh, and get them to manage volunteers who work for us for free. And so during the 90s, a lot of second wave feminist organizations were presented with a devil's bargain that they would get massive state patronage if they did more of the state's work. And of course, what that meant was that the leadership class changed because then the categorical imperative for your organization is state patronage. So you need an executive director who makes all the decisions, who's a member of the courtier class, who can interact with members of the courtier class inside the state to maintain your funding. And your capacity to function as advocates is destroyed because you're reliant on state patronage. 
And Rave Relief is an extraordinary exception to that. They saw that trap and they did not walk in. And most organizations did, like Community Living BC. They just, they were looking at deinstitutionalization and how so many mentally ill people were suddenly ending up on the streets during deinstitutionalization and Blairite austerity. And they caved, right? They, they turned into the organization that runs uh, housing for the mentally disabled. So, yeah, I think, I think what you're saying, I mean, it's very much on point, right? There, there are efforts by women to create uh, organizations that serve women. And the state periodically tries to seize those organizations and um, they do so by presenting what appears to be patronage, but is actually servitude. And uh, Lakeman and others saw that and uh, resisted. And that's why even though we live in one of the most woke jurisdictions on earth, Rape relief keeps doing its job. Uh, other questions or comments? I just I just wanted to say that we saw those kinds of things like rape crisis shelters, daycare centers, and the other things that we developed as reforms, liberal reforms. They weren't, we did not see them as, um, as what, we, what we were really working for, which was women's liberation. And the social services are actually a reaction to, um, to the position of women. Uh, and basically, daycare centers and rape crisis shelters were seen as just a way to get the foot off of our neck long enough for us to be able to do something else, like fight for our liberation. Um, so um, that's one of my major critiques of, of social services is if if you do away with poverty and male violence, you can also do away with social services. If you think about it. Yeah. Indeed. So um, uh, if there are no other questions or comments, I uh, have a very uh, tight turnaround time on a writing contract I was handed yesterday, and uh, I need to uh, take a call about that if uh, it's all right with everybody. Um, I'll see you guys on Monday. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. It was really Thank interesting you. to hear your point of view, Sandra.